This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. And I want to give a special thank you to Wes, who just signed up this week to support us on Patreon, and to Modi Rudstein, who just signed up to make regular contributions to the show via PayPal. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so now let's get to our show. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 450 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, we'll be discussing some of our favorite games that were created for the Apple II, which was one of the most popular computers of the 1980s. And I'm joined by two guests. So first up, we've got David L. Craddock, who you may remember from our feature interview back in episode 397. He's written over a dozen books about video games, including Arcade Perfect, Stay a While and Listen, and Rocket Jump. He's also the author of the young adult fantasy novel Heritage, the first book in the Garden Chronicles. And we'll be speaking with him today about his book Breakout, how the Apple II launched the PC gaming revolution. So, David, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me back. I've been looking forward to it. And also joining us today is Mark Lemmer. He's a finance and business management consultant, has spent a lifetime playing Apple II role-playing games, and was project leader on the new 8-bit role-playing game Nox Archaeus from 6502 Workshop. The game was designed to run on the Apple II, and features cameos from gaming legends such as Richard Garriott, Steve Wozniak, and Jordan Mechner. So, Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Okay, so I think the first thing to say on this topic is that I never, unfortunately, ever owned an Apple II. My parents both worked for IBM, so we always had IBM PCs in the house growing up. But I did spend quite a bit of time on Apple IIs at school because, uh, you know, we had a computer lab and those were all Apple IIs. And then my uncle Bill had a uh, an Apple II, so every time I was over at my grandma's house, I would play games on his Apple II. So the Apple II games that I played a lot at school were like Oregon Trail and Number Munchers, and then uh, over at my grandma's house, I played a lot of Karateka and Load Runner, are the ones I really remember. And so I played a lot of RPGs of this era. So I played Ultima Four and Fantasy 1 and 2 and Rings of Zilfin, but I played all the the PC ports of those. But, I mean, those games were all on the Apple II, and so I think they were fairly similar from what I know. Um, but so let's go to David. Uh, what kind of was your personal experience? Did you ever own an Apple II? I was fortunate. I kind of did and kind of didn't. My grandma was an elementary school teacher. She taught in the reading center, and she kept an Apple II in her classroom. And when I was sick or when I was quote unquote sick, I got to go <laughs> to the reading center with her and spend the day playing uh, games like the Oregon Trail, of course, which is a perennial favorite. Uh, Where in the World's Carmen San Diego. I even had the big almanac, the world almanac that came with the game so you could look up uh, answers to the clues. And then when uh, summer vacation hit, she would bring the computer home. So I got to play her entire library of games all summer long. So were you quote unquote sick a lot? Uh, yes, as often as I could be. Uh, in fact, in the, uh, in the summer between fifth and sixth grade, um, when I wasn't sick at all, miraculously, weirdest thing, um, 
I, I took my first programming class and I did that on the Apple II. I went to a summer school in State Street Middle School, which is where I eventually went to middle school. And it was awesome because I would spend the day, you know, writing code in basic and the novelty of like making my own games, making things happen on the screen because I made them happen was really cool. But then afterwards, while we were waiting for parents to come pick us up, I would play Lemonade Stand, which is still one of my favorite Apple II games to this day. Yeah. Yeah. I played that as well. It's a game where you like, have your own lemonade stand and you decide how many stands there are going to be and where they're going to be positioned and how much you're going to charge for lemonade and stuff like that. And yeah, and it teaches kids it, to be entrepreneurs. <laughs> it did. Although I think I got a little carried away with it because like a lot of kids, I ran a lemonade stand and I was sitting there out on the sidewalk outside my grandparents. I was thinking, you know, I'm charging a quarter, but in this game, I have it up to $200 a glass. What am I doing wrong? Here? <laughs> See, how about Mark? What were you? Uh, does this sound familiar, the kind of experiences we're talking about here? Oh, yeah, definitely. I've played most of the games that uh, that you uh, both mentioned, and uh, I, I got into the, the Apple II really very young age. I was like five years old, and uh, my dad bought an Apple II. I had a couple older brothers, and uh, so we got an Apple II in the house, I think, in uh, 1980, early end of the, the, the 80s. Um, and it was like an, uh, an Apple II Plus, but uh, I, I can remember sitting watching my brothers play games because I was really too young for most of the games at first, and I can remember watching them play Ultima and things like that. And at the time, I could only you know play things like Lemonade Stand, and <laughs> that, that was what I was allowed to do. But uh, that was kind of where my uh, interest in uh, role playing games and, and programming uh, was born. And uh, you mentioned Oregon Trail earlier, too. I definitely spent a lot of time playing that, mostly at school, because that was like the, uh, the, the game that the schools had. Every school seemed to have an Apple II uh, somewhere in the building, and there was always a copy of Oregon Trail. And uh, so I, I played that a lot uh, at school. Died of dysentery uh, many times, <laughs> <laughs> as, as is tradition. Yeah. Well, well, and David, that's something you talk about. I just read your book, Breakout. And I mean, I, I definitely had the sense that pretty much everyone of a certain age played Oregon Trail in school. Um, but I hadn't realized just how popular it was. But I guess, you know, pretty much every school had Apple Twos, and there were only like 10 games at the time. And so pretty much everyone <laughs> played all the same games. Um, but I think you said Oregon Trail had uh, sold like 65 million copies. It was something, something it's... unbelievable like that. Yeah, it was an absurd number. And the interesting thing is, um, like our, none of our cases were atypical. The, the cool thing about the Apple II is that even though it came out in 1977, it got this second, third and fourth wind because it was in most classrooms until the early nineties when the Macintosh kind of took over. Um, you know, the Mac came out in 1984, but it takes time to move all these machines into schools and have them like phase out old hardware. And so it was, I mean, in, I know in my elementary school, we not only had a computer lab with, I think maybe 10 or so Apple twos, but each teacher had at least one Apple two in the classroom and you'd have kids rushing through in class assignments to be the person at the keyboard while playing Oregon Trail. Everyone else just had to stand around and, and hope that the suggestions they pitched were listened to because <laughs> you wanted to be uh, behind the wheel. Well, I never, I, I guess I never thought about it before, but I, I never knew that Oregon Trail was actually made by teachers. And initially it was just, you know, um, these teachers thought it would be an interesting way to teach this like week long history module that they had to teach. And then it kind of, you know, snowballed from there. Yeah, and that's so. One of the things I did with uh, with Breakout is for the first, I think I want to say three chapters, 
I wrote about games that weren't, uh, that did not originate on the Apple II, but they were popularized on the Apple II. You know, uh, Oregon Trail was a text-only game programmed on a mainframe, and students at the school where the teachers made this uh, played Oregon Trail by using dumb terminals connected to the mainframe. And the interesting thing there is they said that the game ended up teaching the students lessons they did not anticipate. For example, since there were no graphics, you couldn't just press keys to shoot the bison as they'd lumber across the screen. You had to type in bang or power or whatever the word was. And students became faster typists. They also worked on their spelling. And so I think the 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 main lesson overall with games like Oregon Trail and Carmen San Diego is that they didn't feel like games, and I don't think a lot of edutainment games that were made on later generations of hardware necessarily captured that. You were still having fun, and you were learning these things subconsciously more than consciously. I think you mean to say they don't feel like education. Oh, they don't feel like education. They definitely yeah. felt like games. <laughs> That's <laughs> yeah, yeah. what I meant. Yes, for sure. <laughs> Oregon Trail, I thought, was particularly good at fooling you into thinking that you, you were playing a game and not really learning something. Whereas yes. some of the other software the schools had that was like, uh, you know, how to conjugate verbs. It was like, that, you know, they're not fooling anyone. We know we're learning. This no. is not fun. <laughs> yeah. No video game has the word conjugate in it unless I'm supposed to be learning something. Yes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I thought it was so interesting, too, that one of these teachers, he had gone through all these um, books of pioneers and things and, and um, tabulated how often somebody died or how often the somebody got yeah dysentery or the wagon uh, tipped over fording the river or whatever, and then made the game match those uh, percentages. And so if you played Oregon Trail and you know how often you die, like that's how often people were actually dying, you know, doing, the, doing that Oregon Trail. Yeah, it was on the same level of a historical novel. You know, obviously there's some creative license involved, but the more you can root it in history, I think the more engrossed in the, the quote-unquote world, as gamers say today, or the universe, you get. Um, you can kind of, again, it's another way to just assimilate these facts, and they feel like part of the game experience the whole time. Yeah. See, so, Mark, in your bio, you mentioned that you've played role-playing games. Is, was role-playing games specifically, was that like your the main thing you were interested in uh, playing on the Apple II? That's what I spent the most time playing. I definitely did branch off from that from time to time, like Oregon Trail. I don't know if you'd exactly consider that uh, a role-playing game or certainly not a typical one. Um, I, I also played uh, the first first-person shooter game, Castle Wolfenstein, on the Apple II. Spent a lot of time playing that. So, um, But, uh, but yeah, role, role-playing games was definitely where my passion was. Yeah, well, so I mentioned the games I really played a lot were Ultima 4, Fantasy 1 and 3, and Rings of Zilfin. Did you ever play any? I, I mean, you must have played Ultima 4. Did, did you play those other ones? I did not play Rings of Zilfin, but I played Ultima uh, 2 through a little bit of 7. Uh, so so definitely the you, – you mentioned, I think, Ultima – was it 3 and 4, you said? I played 4, yeah. You played 4. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I, I spent a lot of time uh, playing 4. And, you know, at the time – uh, you know, as you know, I mean, we didn't have that many games and an Ultima title would come out like once every two or three years or something. So, uh, you know, the Ultima 4 is the kind of game where, yep, I, I, I played that constantly pretty much until Ultima 5 came out years later. So that was, it's a lot of time <laughs> to, to invest in one game. Yeah, well, it was really striking. You know, my, my girlfriend's about 10 years younger than I am. And when I met, you know, when we first met, she had a bunch of roommates and they were all really into video games. And they would have like on their calendar, like this game's coming out on 
you know, on the 15th and I got to Then I'll have three days to play that before this game comes out on the 20th, you know, like, and it was just so much different from, yeah, when I guess probably all of us were growing up where, yes. yeah, you might play one game for three years, you know, because there was nothing else really uh, that you liked as much as that one game. Yeah, absolutely. It's very different. And I think it's very much affected. Uh, it's changed the way that people play games and therefore the way uh, game designers make them. Uh, that 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 difference in availability. Yeah. So, did, were you doing the whole creating your own adventure journal and drawing your own maps and and all that kind of stuff? Oh, sure. Yeah, I, I've got reams of graph paper from old maps that <laughs> uh, that I made playing uh, the role playing games uh, on the Apple II in the eighties, and and that was a lot of fun. And and I've gone back and revisited some of them as an adult and, uh, you know, redid the maps basically because that was part of the fun. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You mean you you already had a map that you could have pulled out of a drawer and looked at, but you're like, nope, I'm not using that. I'm I'm drawing my own map again for the first time. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) That's hardcore. That's what we like to hear. Totally. Um, Did you ever, I mean, like in David's book, there are a bunch of other role-playing games that he kind of highlights. So like Colossal Cave Adventure, Zork, Wizardry, Bard's Tale, Wastelands. Did you ever play any of those? Uh, yes, I, I played. Uh, of those, I played Wizardry and Bard's Tale, and uh, very much enjoyed those. And I, I think, really, t- from my perspective, uh, Ultima, Bard's Tale, and Wizardry uh, were were just hugely foundational uh, role playing games of the day. And and mo- most others trace the roots back to those in one way or the other. And uh, uh, definitely a lot of fun with those. Yeah. I mean, David, were you into those role-playing games as well? I didn't get to experience them until after the fact, because since I interacted with Apple IIs either in a classroom or, in my grandmother's case, uh, as someone who spent most of her time in the classroom and brought her home, I had mostly educational games. But I did get to play, uh, I think in middle school we still had Apple IIs, and someone, you know, we started bringing in games from home and trading them like baseball cards. Hmm. And and I did get to play, I think it was Ultima 3. And I didn't realize it at the time, but that game uh, was this watershed moment for not just RPGs, but games, because it introduced morality. And, you know, looking back, it was pretty simple. Uh, like Ultima 4. Uh, Ultima 4 did, yes, Ultima 4. Um, I think, I, well, I think I played 3. I must have played 4 later. Maybe that was in high school, because we still had Apple II's then. But I thought it was cool. You know, looking back, it was kind of simple. You go into a shop, like, Okay, am I going to to steal the sword or pay for the sword? But it was this really big deal that I, you know, realized as I wrote Breakout that sent these ripple effects through uh, later role playing games, which deal increasingly with uh, moral decisions. Yeah, well, no, I've talked about this a lot on the podcast, but yeah, I was a huge fan of the Ultima games and really like the Eight Virtues, which was the the sort of ethical system in those games was mm-hmm. was really became almost like my personal code and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, they were just hugely, hugely formative for me. I don't know, um, Mark, did the eight virtues make, make an impression on you? Uh, yeah, it was, it was definitely, I think it made, made uh, an impression on me for the most, most, the biggest impression on me from a game design standpoint. Um, I I have heard stories of some people saying how, you know, Ultima four kind of taught them right from wrong to some extent and changed, you know, their life in certain ways. I've heard stories like that for, for me. Uh, I think it was more I was seeing it from a game design standpoint of like, okay, this is very different than Ultima 3, Ultima 2, Ultima 1, 
or Wizardry or Bards, so anything else that was happening at, at the time. And, and I found it really, really interesting from that standpoint. And, you know, different people had different reactions. I know, uh, uh one of my brothers that, uh, uh, probably played Ultima the most, uh, out of all of us, uh, he reacted very negatively to it. He was like, what? They, they make you be good? You can't steal <laughs> things and destroy towns? Forget it. I'm not playing it. You know, it was a totally, <laughs> totally different reaction from him. And, uh, but yeah, I, I definitely, uh, I, I definitely enjoyed that aspect of the game with the virtues and kind of figuring out, uh, just almost, Kind of like, what am I supposed to be doing here? What's the goal of the game? Was a little bit elusive, and and part of that comes from, um, uh, I, I I was playing without a manual, um, and <laughs> you know other trinkets, and you know how the how such a, a circumstance would come up, uh, I, I have no idea, but I wasn't. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Ultima Five, I had the manual and all the stuff, uh, but but so it was it was a little bit you know, lost kind of trying to figure it out because it didn't have a, a conventional, uh, you do this and that, and here's the ending, you know, to it. So that made it a little bit uh, challenging in a different way, just kind of figuring out what the end goal was. Yeah. Did you beat any of the, cause like I, I, I played Ultima four for a long time and never really got anywhere in it. I did beat <laughs> Ultima six and seven, but only cause I picked up the, the hint guide, you know, there's no way I ever would have made it through those without that. So I'm just curious, did you, did you complete any of those Ultima games? Uh, I, I completed Ultima three and uh, Ultima five and Ultima six when when I was playing them when they you know around the time they came out. Ultima four did I have to admit did stump me. I got within the you know a stone's throw of completing it, uh, but there I just couldn't figure out some of the the puzzles down at the bottom of the abyss where you know the final dungeon of the game. And, uh, and, and eventually Ultima 5 came out and, uh, you know, I, I just started playing that. It was on, only, uh, in modern times that I, I went back to Ultima 4, picked it up and, and, uh, played it all the way through, uh, to the end. And, uh, I, I, I did have to get a couple hints for, for those puzzles. The same ones that stumped me as a kid stumped me again. <laughs> I had, I had to go look up the answers to some of the stuff at the end. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, that was a lot of fun. Well, because I, I had that. That reminds me, I had this experience playing Rings of Zilfin, which I never beat. And I'm still kind of mad about that because I put so much time <laughs> into that game. But you know, so like after playing for months or years, I don't even know. You know, I got up to the last boss, and um, and they used to have hint lines where you could call up the company and, and ask them what to do. And I'm like, I'm, I'm at the last boss, I just can't figure out what to do. And the the woman says, Oh, you have to type in submit thy ring. And I'm like, Okay, so I like try that, and then it doesn't work, and I call back, and and she's like, You have the the ring, right? And I was like, uh, no, I, I don't have the ring. And she's like, oh. And it's like, that's something you're supposed to do, like, at the beginning of the game. And you have, like, one save slot <laughs> in the game. So uh, so I never beat Rings of Zilpin. That That's funny. Uh, uh, a friend of mine, when we were growing up playing Ultima 4 in the 80s, uh, he tried the Richard Garriott helpline once. He went to, I think it was GemCon uh, in uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And uh, Richard Garriott was there uh, promoting probably uh, Ultima Five at the time, and so my friend bought the the game and got a nice autographed uh, copy from from Richard Garriott and and asked him. It's like I, I can't figure out the word in Ultima Four. Can you tell me what it is? And uh, he didn't. Richard didn't actually tell him. He said, "Well, go talk to like the mage in the village cove or something, and uh, you know he'll tell you if you have the word correct." 
and and trying to still leave some challenge there. And so my friend gets back and we're like, oh, okay, at least we got this hint. And we still couldn't figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think one of those, I think it's Ultima 5, like the computer is, they misspelled one of the words in the program. So like, it's like basically impossible to beat the game if you don't know how, what the misspelled <laughs> yeah. version of the word you're supposed to type in is. There, there was an issue like that uh, in, in Ultima 4 with uh, with one of the clues uh, that it, exactly it was a spelling issue and just impossible <laughs> to get past. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's reminding me, David, in your book, there was this funny story about Larry Niven and Jerry Pornell calling it or uh, emailing, I guess, the, the creators of Zork when it was running. <laughs> I don't know if you do you remember that off the top I, of your head? I don't remember that off the top of my head, no. Yeah. So, I, I mean, basically the story was that these are, so these are two, you know, well-known science fiction authors, but they were playing Zork in their early days and they would email the the students who had created it, um, you know, to uh, ask for hints or like give their thoughts or whatever. <laughs> and they would, every, every, for, they were doing this over successive evenings and each evening they would start drinking and start playing the game. And so their emails got progressively more like belligerent and or incoherent, uh, you know, throughout the evening. And, and he says one time Jerry Pornell like emailed some angry thing and then emailed like five minutes later and was like, I'm sorry I said that. I didn't mean that. <laughs> it's just really funny. It is. That's also it it's almost like a hallmark of, of early game designs. I mean, I think the first three King's Quest games had parts where if you didn't pick up a certain item or do a certain event at the beginning, you could still get to the end, but you couldn't finish and you also couldn't go back. It was just something that designers had to learn how to weed that stuff out as they, as they taught themselves how to make games. Yeah. I mean, that's really, I, I, I got burned really bad with one of those in King's Quest four, for sure. Oh. Uh, you know what I'm talking about? The lamp and the dwarves. And yeah. The... Yeah. I think it happened to me in King's Quest one, which kind of soured me on the series for a long, <laughs> long time. Yeah. I mean, but, um, and I've, you know, as I, obviously I'm a huge fan of Ultima and Richard Garriott and everything. And I've read, you know, multiple, multiple books about origin and everything, but even so it never really like sunk in until I read breakout, just what a family business origin was in the early days. And like, I never imagined that, um, I, I have a quote here, but like when, um, I think it was Ultima three sold a hundred thousand copies and and Richard Garriott says, you know, it's uh, it's not easy to produce 100,000 of anything in your garage, you know, and like his <laughs> yeah. whole family was basically, you know, making these games in the garage and he had a shrink wrap machine and all this kind of stuff was just in their house. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's really interesting how game the games industry is cyclical. You know, you had a similar experience when smartphone and tablet games started taking off and eventually you know that sort of setup just was no longer viable but you think about how just as a family as like a three or four person operation that's a lot of money for just a few of you and of course most of it um rested on uh, richard's shoulders but it was just an interesting time that a few people get to experience well because i had heard him talk about you know that he would write games himself and then put them in copy them himself onto, uh, you know, five and a quarter inch diskettes and put them in a plastic bag and take them down to the local <laughs> computer store and say, would you put this on sale for me? And I, I didn't realize how common that was, but reading your book, it was like everyone was, I mean, that's the story of so many of these game designers of, or and even companies of this era was they started out just putting games in plastic bags and going down to their local computer store and saying, you know, 
would you sell this? And the store owner is like, yeah, this is as good as anything else we've got for sale. Why not? <laughs> yeah. And there were also some variations. Um, I, I don't know if I mentioned this in breakout or in stay while well and listen, because both of those stories involve, uh, Brian Fargo, the head of the company that made uh, wasteland and barge tale, but he would use guerrilla marketing where when he had his first game, I think it was an Apple II game. It was a, uh, an adventure game. Um, he would call a store, ask for the game. They wouldn't have it. And he would act really upset. And then he would call back like five minutes later and say, oh, my name is Brian Fargo. I'm selling this game. And the store would go, oh, we've been getting so many calls about that. Let's talk about that. <laughs> and just really kind of cool oblique angles to get your games onto shelves or onto pegboards, as it were, back then. That's yeah. awesome. Well, so, Mark, so David mentioned that he was programming games. Were you programming games uh, as a kid or anything? Yes. Yeah, I, I started uh, learning programming about the same time as, as I started playing games, again, largely because I had some older brothers that were, were doing both, so I could look over their shoulder as they were learning uh, uh, AppleSoft on the Apple II and so forth, and, and was able to, uh, you know, just kind of start fiddling around with it. But it, it very quickly, my, uh, my hobby emerged into one of, you know, yeah, I was playing these role-playing games, but... Uh, I would kind of oscillate between that and trying to write a role-playing game, and I went back and forth for years uh, doing that. Did you ever make? Did you ever think about publishing a game or anything? Uh, being as young as I was, I, I never really put that much thought into what would happen if I actually succeeded. Uh, <laughs> and and uh, in part because uh, I never really got all that close. Mostly, what I was doing was, uh, you know, working on. Uh, a game engine, before, you know, without even really understanding the concept of what a game engine was, I never really got to the stage of adding content, and uh, and and I kept starting over, you know, partially because I, I was learning programming. So by the time I would get, uh, you know, certain ways in, I would realize, oh, you know, if I started over, I could do it a different way that would be so much better. And so as a result, I I never really came anything close to uh, to finishing anything uh, as a kid. Yeah, I mean, because I spent a ton of time as a kid programming games and especially role-playing games and things. But, you know, I, but I was programming like in um, in BASIC and Pascal. Um, and so I would always get to a point where just the, the language, you know, it was too slow or there was some memory limit or something. And I would get frustrated and, and uh, move on to something else. But sure. so actually, so reading Breakout, I was kind of like, oh, yeah, there's actually you would have to like be clever about about you know <laughs> programming the game to run fast or to not use too much memory or or things like that. I, I never got to that that stage of mastery. And there was nothing to guide a person, you know, at that point. You know, the average uh, you know kid playing with their Apple II, you know, reading you know Nibble magazines or just the 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 the, uh, the, the literature that was available, which wasn't much. There wasn't really anything that mapped this out. You know, like okay, if you if you want to make a game here's what uh, like a substantial game here's what you need to do in order to uh, make use best use of the memory and make it fast enough and all these these different things. Yeah, I mean, I can certainly remember when I was a kid. You know, you would, there would be these like 900 page books where it's like the ultimate guide to programming games or something like that, <laughs> and you would read the first couple pages and then there, there it would say like, okay, let's start with a simple program, and then the simple program is like a hundred times more complicated than anything I could possibly understand. <laughs> And then it's like, okay, now that we've mastered that, let's move on to something more complex. And, I'm, and then there's like, you're like, what the, who the, like, obviously these books are not honestly, you know, not uh, genuinely written for new kid programmers. Um, I no. guess, 
I guess, David, how far did you ever get with any of your game? How far did that go, the programming that you did? Um, I was actually on the computer science track through college. I started programming when I was around 10, and I, I largely learned uh, basic and C, then C++, just from studying books and eventually getting access to, to websites like Programmer's Heaven, where people would help you out. You would paste in uh, a snippet of code or a function or a class, and people could help you figure out what wasn't working or optimize it. And I got pretty far, but I had a, a bad experience in college. I was one of those kids, probably everyone hated secretly, but um, I knew a lot more than my teachers did. And I didn't throw that in their face, but I was just kind of frustrated because I got to a point where I felt like they were leaning on me to guide the class. And I thought, you're being paid for this. I am paying you. I'm not really learning a lot. And I loaded up on credit hours, but at the same time, I would take writing and literature courses just to kind of relax. And I just got to a point where I was talking to my girlfriend, now wife, and said, I think I'm just going to pursue writing um, because programming, I'm just kind of burnt out and it's not fun anymore. But I can still, I, I think I bring to my books the perspective of someone who I've certainly never done anything of the scale of a Nox Archaeist or any other game, uh, classic or, or contemporary, but I kind of understand a little bit of what it's like to be in the trenches and to work with this stuff and try to bring that perspective to the stories that I write about it. What was the process like of writing um, Breakout? Like, how did you decide to write an Apple II book? <laughs> um, I was at, I guess it would have been Books a Million, and I was browsing their computer section, and I found a book about, I don't remember what it's called, like the 100 best NES games ever made. And I picked it up like, well, I'm going to just argue with this right off the bat. And <laughs> um, a, a card fell out and I picked it up and it said, hey, this is you know a Schiffer publishing book. We're looking for authors. If you have a pitch, send it to us. And on the drive home, I thought that book looked pretty cool. It was a hardcover. I haven't had a hardcover book come out yet. What could I write about? Oh, I love Apple II games and no one's really written about how those are made. I done stay a while and listen and Dungeon Hacks, which is a book about roguelike RPGs. And when I got home, I sat down, and over like an hour, I put together this proposal for Breakout, which I think was in, first was in called Insert Disc. Um, and then two days later, they said, hey, we want to do this. Let's talk advances. And I was like, oh, shit, I have to write this now. And um, that's kind of how it started. It was originally going to be like a 50-chapter a book uh, with a little bit about each game and its historical relevance. But then I thought, you know, what I like to do is I like to talk to developers and learn how they actually did what they did. So the only criteria I set for myself was I'm not going to write about any game unless I can talk to the, the person or persons who made it because I don't want to end up just regurgitating Wikipedia articles. And um, it just kind of evolved from there. Well, it's a real, I mean, like you, I think you said it's a hardcover book. I mean, it's really like nice paper and full color pictures throughout and all sorts of, um, you know, covers and, uh, advertisements and news clippings kind of things. Like, so, I mean, they must have felt that there was a, a pretty good market for a book about the Apple II. I mean, for, to, to put all this production values into this book. They did. They were pretty excited about it because by that point, I pitched it in the spring of 2015 and it came out in September, 2017. But by the time they uh, accepted my proposal, 
Um, several other books like uh, Walter Isaacson, Isaacson, Steve Jobs biography, Masters of Doom by David Kushner, um, both of which were huge influences on me. Those books have come out and proven that there was an interest in not just books about the history of games and tech, but narrative style books where readers can no, not get too caught up in the nitty gritty of code and things like that, but follow quote unquote characters. And it's, it's, you know, the stories of people setting out to build things, um, to kind of make it to hustle are very relatable. And I just happen to write about, um, people who do that with, with video games and technology. And the cool thing about all of the, the pictures and concept artwork illustrations and so forth I included was all of those came from you know, Richard Garriott, Brian Fargo, Jordan Mechner. I mean, everyone I talked to thought it was a really cool idea and sent me a ton of stuff. I was actually, I had a hard time deciding what to leave out more than I had decided what could go in. Well, no, it's, a, it's a terrific book. And I mean, like I said, I mean, this is, and it really captures that era so well. And I'm a little too young. Like, like when I was growing up, it was like just after most of the stuff you're talking about, you know, because most of the um, characters in the book were sort of 10 to 20 years old when the Apple II came out. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, so, so I, I just personally experienced sort of the, the echoes and reverberations of the, of most of the events that you talk about, which was sort of like 77 to 83 or something. Um, but it, it just captures that era so well. So I think it would be interesting even if you, if you have no experience, because like you say, because it's the story of these people and, and what they did. Yeah, I, I really appreciate that. And that's always something I try to do. I, I like to write my books so that they have two layers. The first is that if people are into video games or a, a certain designer, then they'll pick it up and they'll probably enjoy it. But I, I always like to to ground each story in personal struggles so that people who might go into it not having played those games or maybe not even really interested in, in video games or having no experience with the Apple II will kind of get caught up with it. And what really resonated about it for me what what made me think it was a good idea was on that drive home from the bookstore, I thought about um, Prince of Persia, which I was born in 1982. So I didn't even really start playing Apple II games until like 89 or 90 when it was um, long since heading into retirement. And I, the first time I played Prince of Persia was on a Mac. A friend and I, uh, his dad took us to uh, where in the world is Carmen San Diego live or in the USA, whichever was uh, the kids show, the live show. And uh, on the way back, he took us to a CompUSA as a treat. And we saw Prince of Persia running on a Mac on an end cap. And I didn't even realize that Prince of Persia started on the Apple II. And I remember playing that while I wrote Breakout. I downloaded an Apple II emulator and found the Prince of Persia image and thought, I cannot believe the game looks just as fluid on the Apple II. That is incredible. And it it makes me think about how consoles today, you know, I was lucky enough to snag a PlayStation 5 at launch. And there aren't a lot of games for it or the Xbox Series X yet. People are mostly playing games from the last generation. And that's kind of always been the case. I realized, oh, you know, a lot of people play Prince of Persia on a Mac or an IBM PC. But in fact, it was a quote unquote last gen game. You know, some things, uh, more things change, the more they stay the same, I guess. Yeah. Well, I played a little bit of Prince of Persia. And it was this, it's the same designer, Jordan Mechner, as um, Karataka, which I, I played a mm-hmm. lot. But um, and both of those games for the time were visually unbelievable. You just couldn't believe yeah. how good good they looked. But were freaking impossible. Like they're oh, yeah. so hard. And you make the point in the book, I think, that you know if the games weren't because the because of the 
disk space and memory limitations and everything. If you made an easy game, you would beat it in 10 minutes. Yeah. So you had to make an impossible game <laughs> so that people <laughs> would like play the same level over and over and over and over again. Um, and I want to get Mark back in here. So Mark, did you, I mean, you must have experienced just how punishingly difficult these Apple II games could be. Definitely. And, uh, uh, it, you know, at the time it was all that I knew. So I didn't, uh, <laughs> you know, think of it as the way that I, you know, do now, now kind of putting it in perspective and seeing how uh, some of the reasons why uh, the designers did it that way, which which uh, you've commented on and and also uh, how it's uh, how it's changed. And, you know, at at the time, you know, as, as kids, we had all, uh, or most of us had way more time than than as adults to play these games. And uh, as a result, uh, you know, could get through some of those challenging puzzles eventually. I mean, if you put a year into something, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> it, which, which oftentimes is switching back and forth between different games and then eventually starting over and coming in with fresh ideas and things like that. But, uh, whereas now that, you know, that's just not, uh, viable, uh, and, and, and even, uh, even for, for kids nowadays, there's so many games to choose from. Uh, it, it's, it just doesn't make any sense to spend a year trying to solve one particular game when there's dozens and dozens and hundreds of others that you could be playing. And so uh, I think that's also part of the reason that, that we've seen that kind of shift in the way games are designed. Did you ever play Karataka? Yes. Yeah. Many I mean, cause, cause my, my, my dominant memory of Karataka is, you know, there's a part where um, you're trying to um, fight through all these guards to get to this, like, I don't know, samurai warlord kind of guy. And he has this blue hawk that he sends to attack you. And it just like flies at you relatively slowly. And all you have to do is punch it uh, <laughs> to get it to fly away from you. But the timing is so finicky that yeah. just over and over again, you're just like, oh, and you just, and the bird's just like, rah, 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 and scratches at your face and flies <laughs> off. And it's so, it's so frustrating. Oh my God. <laughs> and I remember the amount of time that it took me to figure out that I needed to punch it instead of kick it. You know, <laughs> I mean, that's a whole set of time right there, just figuring out you need to punch. And then, like you said, you got to do it so precisely. You know, if you're just sitting there trying stuff, you know, it's going to take a while to figure out the punching is the right way to do it because it doesn't, like you said, it doesn't even, you have to do it really precisely. So, yeah, that, that was that was an interesting one. Or also at the end where you you, you finally beat the uh, the samurai lord and you go into the room with the princess and if you just walk up to her, she kicks you in the face and kills you. <laughs> I'm sure, I imagine you probably remember that. And I, yeah. I, it took me a while to figure out that, oh, I need to run towards her in order <laughs> to finish the game. I had, I had forgot. I don't, honestly, I had forgotten. But like reading David's book, because he he goes into that in the book, was bringing back all this stuff. Like, yeah, there's like a <laughs> gate that comes down and kills you in one shot, and yes. then the princess kills you in one shot. Like, there's all, the, and then you, you know, so you could have put like, you know, an hour into, you know, fighting past all these guys and everything, and then you know, and then you die, and it's completely very very hard to predict way right at the end there. Oh man, definitely. <laughs> um. But so what was, um, tell us, Mark, so um, have you been playing Apple II games all these years, or did you kind of get back into it at a certain point? I definitely had a hiatus. Uh, I, I, I was doing it uh, probably up through the mid-90s, and and then, you know, things obviously at that point were, were taken off on the more on the IBM PC and compatible uh, platform. And uh, I, I got back into it, I would say, probably around 2014, so what was that, six years ago? 
And uh, it was just one day I, I decided, well, you know, I'm going to buy a Apple II on eBay and, uh, you know, start playing some, some of the old games that I remember. That'll be fun. Uh, and it, it actually wasn't that random. If I, if I recall, I moved and I moved into uh, a place where I had enough room that I, I, I could, uh, set, you know, set up another desk with an Apple II without it, it interfering with my other home office stuff. So, so that I think kind of triggered it. But, uh, but yeah, that was really fun. And, and it, it really just snowballed. Uh, you know, I didn't really know what I was going to do with it from, from there, if I was just going to, you know, play a little bit of what. But no, I uh, started playing some Castle Wolfenstein, and that led to, you know, replaying Ultima, replaying Bards. I just started going through all the, you know, the usual titles that I had enjoyed as a kid. And I, I gather there's still a pretty active Apple II sort of fan community. Were you plugged into that at all? Uh, eventually, I, I, I became plugged into it uh, after I started developing Nox or Chaos. Uh, but uh, at, at first, when, when I uh, kind of got back into Apple II and, and gaming, at that point, uh, I had really no idea that there was an Apple II, active Apple II community out there. I knew, obviously, people were selling some stuff on eBay, but, you know, I didn't really think anything of that. You know, maybe they're just cleaning out the closet. But uh, <laughs> eventually, I found that, yeah, there's actually like thousands of people worldwide that are still actively uh, doing doing things with uh, Apple II's and even a annual convention in uh, Kansas City, Missouri called Kansas Fest that has actually was uh, has been held since uh, sometime in the 1980s and has actually been held every every year since. It just the rest of the world moved on uh, to Mac and uh, IBM PCs, uh, but uh, they never did. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, David, you want to talk about that? Because you, you certainly talk about that in, in your book. Yeah, it's, it's it's interesting that, you know, for me, one of my favorite PC games is Doom. And the Doom community never really stopped. And then every time I look up a book about classic games, I realize, oh, there's still people out there making these games. And a lot of people just, they'll make something for fun. Like, I recently wrote a book about... um Microsoft's early years in PC game publishing up to and through the launch of the original Xbox. And so one of the people I spoke with was Ed Freeze, former vice president of game development at Microsoft. And he said just for fun, he made Halo on the Atari 2600. And he was also kind of surprised that there's a community actor for that. And then when you reached out to me about this panel and told me about Nox Arceus, I thought, all right, I'm going to look this game up. I, I didn't hear about it. And I saw the first screenshot. Mark, and I was like, oh, man, I'm getting Ultima vibes from this. But I wonder if, and then I scrolled down, I'm like, oh, my goodness, there are feelies. They have, you know, <laughs> a map and all those collectibles. And I was like, see, that's like, that's the extra mile, right? Like, a lot of people still develop, you know, games for classic systems. But I feel like part of the total package back then was you get this really big box. Once you moved on from Ziploc baggies and note cards with diskettes. And then you'd get, you get the cloth map, you might get figures, you'd get a nice manual and a hint book. And I think that is, that's what really excites me about these communities still being active is these are people who obviously know that the games go beyond the games. And there's all this other stuff associated with that time in that era that people are nostalgic for. And then it's still fun to discover for the first time. You realize, oh, gee, you know, Steam is convenient, but I kind of miss all this cool stuff that used to come with games. Yeah, I mean, there's there's no question that the, the the maps and everything in the manuals for Ultima just made it so magical, and a lot of that was just because of the um, again because of the disc limitations and stuff. They just couldn't put all the 
all the even just all the text in a lot of these early games like you talk about with wastelands you know like mm-hmm. you know you just needed a book because uh you know that was that was a way to get more text as part of the game experience um but yeah i mean yeah all those those feelings and maps and everything um i don't know i mean mark you must talk about what that meant to you yeah it, it's a quintessential part of a role playing game to me. And, uh, I, I bought, uh, Ultima five as a kid waited like four weeks for UPS to deliver, you know, ordering it out of a magazine or something, you know, <laughs> not, not the way, uh, it works anymore, of course, but, uh, but at, at the time, you know, in at the box arriving, you know, in the mail and opening it up and, you know, reading through the manual, I, I, I was the kind of person where I would read the manual before playing the game. Yes. And I just love those cloth maps and was so immersive. And so that, that was, uh, you know, that was my experience with it as a kid. And so when I set out to make Knox or Chaos, that was always in the back of my mind, uh, was like, well, you know, if I'm going to do this, I should really, really do it all the way and, uh, you know, get the box and the feelies. And, and obviously that, uh, eventually, uh, worked out. And, uh, even though the game, uh, uh does come in a box and plays on an Apple II, um, we're actually launching on Steam on January 28th. Uh, will be the first Apple II game ever on the Steam platform. It's of course the uh, uh, <laughs> the Windows and Mac version of the game, and uh, we we couldn't actually get the box of feelies somehow inserted <laughs> into the Steam uh, <laughs> environment. But uh, uh, you know, for for those that uh, that just want to play the game and uh, enjoy it on a modern platform, can't be easier than that uh, to be able to jump in and Steam and do it. Well, yeah, let me say, too, about the map, because it's an interesting story. And I'd forgotten some of the details until I, I just read David's book again. But so so Richard Garriott saw Time Bandits, the Terry Gilliam movie, in which there's this magic map that shows you where the different time time space portals are. And he's like, oh, my next game, there's got to be a map like that. And so he had, I don't know, he approached like eight publishers and said, I want to put a map in my next game. And like seven of them just walked away right there. And then the one that didn't was Sierra. And so then he published Ultima 2 with Sierra. Um, and then I guess there were issues. And that's that led him to walk away from them and, and start his own company. But I, I've heard him say that like every single company that he uh, approached to produce the maps, it proved to be such a nightmare for them that they didn't want to work with them again. And so he had to find a different <laughs> company to do every map for every different uh, game in the Ultima series. It seems to be a constant in game development, too. Like back then, you know, one reason a lot of publishers didn't want to touch that sort of merchandise was because it was so expensive to make and to distribute. And, you know, it's funny because digital games um, are relatively inexpensive to sell compared to physical products, but you still pay full price for them. So I think companies probably get a, a larger markup for that, but it's also just, it's damn convenient. I mean, I know that any computer I log into on steam, um, I can access my whole library from there, but there's still, like Mark said, I mean, he hit the nail on the head. There's, that's part and parcel with that community and with that era. You need, you need the feelies. And I think for true collectors, you go for that because you just want to have that on your shelf. Yeah. Okay. So let's lay this out a little bit more clearly. So Mark, so you're, you, you buy your Apple II and you play through all the ultimate games and everything. And at some point, Tell us about when you got serious about making Nox Archaeist. Sure. So uh, after playing through uh, the usual games, uh, I 
uh, got a book on 6502 assembly language, and the original reason I got it wasn't really related to making a game. There, there was something I was tinkering with that I was trying to figure out. Uh, but by the time I got done reading the, the book, uh, I thought, I, I, I can see how to make the game I always wanted to make as a kid uh, in assembly language, which is, of course, the key to, uh, to getting a game uh, to run fast enough on, on an 8-bit uh, platform is using something like assembly instead of uh, basic or Pascal. Um, and uh, so that, that really just rekindled the, the desire uh, at that point, and uh, I started to, um, you know, basically code up little prototype things in, in assembly that would be foundational to uh, a, a Ultima-style tile-based uh, Apple II game engine, and then eventually uh, contacted uh, uh, one of my friends that I, I played uh, Ultima with back uh, in the 80s and said, hey, you know, here's what I'm tinkering around with, you know, what do you think? And, you know, so, so we ended up kind of uh, joining forces to, uh, to kind of get the project off, uh, off the ground. And, um, and, and it eventually just kind of snowballed once uh, we formally announced it in the Apple II community. Uh, it uh, garnered a lot of interest and, and eventually other, other people uh, contacted me that uh, were interested in being involved that had uh, a particular skill that uh, they, they did something uh, uh, much better than me, like uh, art, uh, sound <laughs> for, for to name two. And, uh, and yeah, it really just took off from there. Yeah, and so the, the game is very clearly modeled on Ultima 5. Like the overworld map looks a lot like Ultima 5, the conversation system, the combat system. Um, the dungeons are overhead rather than first person. Um, I guess, could you talk about some of those? So what's, what's um, distinct from, about this from, from Ultima 5 about, in terms of the game mechanics and engine? Sure. So, so really what the mission of the project was, uh, was to see what might have happened if development on RPGs had continued on the Apple II platform past the end of the 1980s and, and early 90s when the world moved on to Macs and PCs. And uh, that was a, uh, you know, a, a decision that game studios made to switch to Mac and PC uh, based on, uh, obviously, where, where the, you know, the market was moving. But uh, I always wondered, uh, you know, could there have been another iteration to a game like Ultima on the Apple II that uh, pushed it further, you know, maybe not something quite on the, the level of Ultima 6, because that, that was obviously their, their first title that was not on the Apple, but something somewhere in between Ultima 5 and Ultima 6. I wanted to find out, was that possible? And uh, as, as a result, uh, you know, I, I proceeded down the path of basically standing on the shoulders of, of giants uh, to uh, make sure that... Uh, the gameplay functionality of Nox Archaeus was on par with Ultima 5, but where I could try to push the boundaries beyond. And uh, I largely was, uh, was successful in, in doing so. Uh, and some of the things that came about from that are uh, uh, pop-up windows. The game has uh, got a full screen, nearly full screen map, and you manage your inventory and merchant transactions and things like that are done in uh, windows that pop up on the screen and overlay, sometimes multiple windows overlaying uh, uh, over the map. Uh, and uh, w with that comes kind of just an overall menu-driven interface uh, where 
Ultima had uh, probably two dozen different keyboard commands, and uh, Noxercast has kind of a subset of those commands uh, that'll feel very familiar if you played Ultima, but a bun- whole bunch of the, uh, the, the the keyboard commands went away uh, because you manage your characters and your inventory and buying and selling for merchants uh, through a menu-based system. Uh, and uh, and then there were a few, you know, kind of uh, uh, ancillary things uh, uh, aside from that, like uh, swimming. You can you can actually go swimming in uh, rivers and even uh, into the ocean a little bit in Nox or Chaos uh, or mobs in uh, mobs or monsters. And typical in in uh, the eight bit style games, you'd have uh, a, a mob or monster that was the size of one tile, uh, like fourteen by sixteen pixels, and in Nox or Chaos. Uh, we decided to see, well, would it be possible to make a four-tile uh, monster so that when you encounter a dragon, it's just huge <laughs> and towering, you know, relative to the size of your your, your character. And uh, and that was uh, that was something that worked out. And, uh, uh, you know, there, there were, uh, you know, those are some examples, but there's a whole bunch of different little, uh, little but noticeable things like that that give Nox Archaeist its own personality as well as... Um, you know, pushes uh, pushes the boundaries forward in terms of what Apple II game, where Apple II gaming had left off. Yeah, well, let me talk about the four um, tile things because I think that that's amazing. Um, yeah, so you have yeah giants and dragons and I don't know like uh, giant uh, squids or something that are all four tile monsters, and also the the big sailing ships, the three mast ships are four tiles. Yes, and I think that just makes such a huge. It's such a huge leap forward because yeah, that's one of the big problems with a tile based game is like a sword a person and a ship are all basically the same size. And, um, you know, it's just, there's something just a little off about that. Um, so I just love sailing around in my ship and, you know, firing my cannon and stuff. It's, it's so cool. And I feel like there's an appeal to these eight bit games. That's it. It goes way beyond nostalgia that I feel like the, um, I don't know, just sort of the, it's, it's the right level of abstraction for me for a, for a role-playing game where I'm sailing my ship around and, you know, like a storm goes by and there's monsters on the coast and I fire my cannon at them and stuff. And it takes like, you know, five minutes or something, but I can, in my head, I can tell myself a little story about, I can imagine all this stuff happening. Whereas with really advanced graphics, uh, you know, if you actually see every step that your character takes and every, you know, cannon loading the cannon and all that stuff, it, it just takes hours and hours you just watch you just, so much of the game is spent not making meaningful decisions, but just watching animation cycles repeat over and over again. And I, I think about this a lot with, yeah, with games like fantasy where, you know, you start the game and you walk, like you quit, you, you press the button six times and you're, and you're at the first dungeon, you know, it, it's just <laughs> like, there's something a lot more, you know, snappy about the pace uh, in a lot of ways. Um, well, yeah, let me go back to, to David. What do you think about that? When you watch, when you, when you said you saw like, Oh, there's this new game, Nox Archaeist. Do you what do you what do you think the appeal is of a of a game like that in today's um, market? I think it's sort of a a gestalt appeal for me. It was not just my interest in playing a game, but it was in seeing someone or a, you know a team willing to go the extra mile and put out things like feelies and buy a box product so that it felt like buying an Apple II game. And actually, I had a I had a question for Mark. Um, sure. I was really, I thought it was really cool that, that you wrote the game in 6502. And I, I know a lot of retro style games, for example, Mega Man 9 from like 11 years ago now, 
was written to resemble an NES game, but it actually did things that the original NES hardware couldn't do. And I don't believe that was the case with Knox Arcadis because uh, you wanted it to run on an Apple II. But was there was there anything you thought of that just wasn't possible to do on the Apple II, no matter how hard you you all tried to make it happen? Yes, there there, there were definitely a, a number of things. And uh, uh, for every feature that, that made it in, that pushed the boundaries, there were definitely those that, uh, that did not. And one uh, example that comes directly to mind is, uh, and, and it actually starts by describing something that we did do, um, we were able to make it so that NPCs were not hard nailed down to their specific, uh, a specific town, which was very much the case in uh in 8-bit rpgs yeah we made we made it you basically using uh state flags uh made it so that uh you know maybe you're talking to an npc in the tavern in a town and you're talking about the mines nearby and uh the uh the npc uh hires you to you know uh provide security for for the miners and says you know kind of says well here's where our mining camp is uh down in the dungeon well, the dungeon, the the uh, the mine. <laughs> we, we know it's, we know what a, it's really a dungeon. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and 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 then you know after that, uh, you actually go into the mine and go to where the you were told by the NPC to go, and suddenly the NPC is there in this mining camp in this uh, you know this dungeon environment, and and is not in the town. If you go back to the town and the tavern, they're gone uh, after that. So, so we were able to get a, a, the concept of kind of event management integrated into the game uh, to be able to to get the world to react to the player in a way that, that was not the case uh, in, in Epic Games. And one thing that we couldn't do to, to, to answer your, your question directly is uh, what I wanted really was for the player to be able to see that NPC walk out of the tavern and exit the town and walk over to you know, the cave and, you know, to kind of actually be able to observe the entire journey. And that was something that was was just not possible, uh, at, at least within the iteration of the engine as as we, we built it. And uh, uh, ultimately, I, th- I think it probably is legitimately impossible without sacrificing so much uh, of uh, the other game components that it, that it really just wouldn't be something that would make sense. I think that's what's fascinating about um, endeavors like yours and, and others by these communities where they, you know, you can think of a really cool idea, but you also have to weigh the limitations. And you know what, can we can we afford to sacrifice all this other stuff that is actually essential to, you know, one system or another just because we want to make this really cool thing happen. And I, I think that's, for me, a hallmark of, of developing a retro or a retro style game is working within those limitations because it does force you to make some sacrifices, but also it brings out a lot of creativity that maybe isn't as much in evidence today because we just have this, the spoil of riches in terms of resources and hardware and things like that. I, I totally agree. And uh, I, th- I think something that, that uh, kind of comes along with that is the excitement and fun of exploration and how that was so present in 8-bit role-playing games and is uh, somewhat absent, I think, in the more modern games that are styled along the lines of, you know, there's the uh, question mark hovering over the head of the person that's the quest giver and, 
and and then you get a dash line uh, that that tells you where where to go, and you know that that being one of the more extreme uh, examples, or or the whole concept of, of fast travel, and you don't actually walk from you know town to town and things like that, uh, and and uh, and in games where you know even where you could, you don't necessarily you wouldn't want to because it might take a couple hours to walk across the world, and the the ratio of time spent just randomly exploring to finding interesting things is just way off balance. Whereas uh, in a uh, 8-bit role-playing game, you can invest some time in just randomly exploring, which may or may not be because you're walking between towns or something. And, you know, the the frequency of finding something unique and interesting is high enough. I I think that it, it makes that experience fun. Uh, whereas in, uh, the modern games, because their worlds are so big, uh, it's just not, uh, practical, uh, to, uh, and, and, and so, so many of them are also, uh, have a lot of, um, you know, programming created content and things. It just becomes impractical, I think, in the business equation of those games to have an actual developer, you know, go in and create enough interesting things throughout the world that it's going to give that same sort of random exploration reward, you know, experience. Would Knox Arcadist run on like a typical Apple II from 1987 or whatever, or would you need to have had like a totally tricked out Apple II to run, to run the game? I, I, I would say fairly typical. Uh, the, uh, what, what really separates the Apple IIs uh, is there's the ones with 128K, and there's the ones that don't have 128k, <laughs> uh, and 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 the, uh, the the reality actually is most of, of the the systems produced do uh, the vast majority do, uh, but at the time uh, developers tended to make their games uh, only or they they tended to make it so that their games would run on all of the platforms, like 100 percent of them, because that was just what made business sense. You don't want to cut off you know a, a chunk of your market. Uh, and when they were doing it at the time, uh, you know, that was before the, you know, the last Apple II, you know, was produced. So they, they, they sort of had a different set of uh, 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 economics that they were dealing with it. But from, from a standpoint uh, of today, uh, you know, the vast majority of Apple IIs uh, will, will run it. And uh, the, uh, yeah. So, so if you uh, find a time machine... Are you going to travel back to 1987 and just become king of the CRPG <laughs> world? <laughs> yeah, that's funny. That, that as fun as that would be, and and uh, I I remember uh, somebody asking me this once before that uh, I I always think about how you know that that uh, I mean if I could literally do that 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 would be great. But the reality is so much that I stood on the shoulders of giants uh, in in what I did. It's a lot easier to create something like Nox or Chaos when, you know, you've seen what came before it, you know, each iteration of the Ultimas, each iteration of the, the Bard Sale games and the Wizardries was better than the one before that. The developers learned from the experience and they set new goals that stretch beyond what they did and then solved to those and went through that process. And, um, you know, I had the, uh, the advantage of seeing how it all played out <laughs> and could just kind of, uh, pick up where they left off and set those uh, stretch goals out one, you know, or two notches further and, and uh, you know, go into it. Uh, so, uh, but, uh, but yeah, if I could just, you know, like I said, time machine, 
and uh, take all the knowledge I had and go back to to 1985 or something and uh, totally screw up the uh, you know the space time continuum in the process. <laughs> sure, why not? <laughs> Well, so so one of my favorite sort of Easter eggs in the game is you find this in spoiler warning, sorry people, but what you you find this room where you meet all these um, Apple II developers and things. And so let me just read the the list. These are, these are the characters you can interact with: Richard Garriott, Silas Warner, Steve Wozniak, Roger Wagner, Brian Fargo, Jordan Mechner, John Carmack, Doctor Cat, John Romero, Becky Heineman, and Robert Woodhead. So. Just can you just quickly tell us like what um how did that room come to be in the game? Sure, um, it was uh, it 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 wasn't something really necessarily in the original plan. Uh, it uh, came to be. Uh, I think it was kind of after uh, our Kickstarter campaign. Prior prior to the Kickstarter campaign, I'd gotten in touch with uh, with Richard Garriott, and he graciously agreed uh, to let us uh, uh, put uh, Lord British in the game as, as an NPC. And, uh, and then, and then, uh, we launched our Kickstarter and through the process of that, I started to get into contact with, uh, some other folks, uh, Dr. Cat, uh, notably, I think, uh, comes to mind in that process. And, uh, one thing kind to led it to another, you know, in talking to people and getting introduced to other people and, and, uh, the idea just kind of naturally evolved at that point. Um, and that, uh, you know, well, hey, I think that it would be fun to have a, you know, reunion party with, uh, you know, these awesome people that, uh, are, are excited about Knox or Chaos and chatting with me about it. And so I started asking, well, hey, you know, would you like to? And, you know, it, it, uh, was, uh, uh, a great success. And, uh, I, I think, uh, to, to a person, everyone I asked was, was, uh, very, uh, excited and happy to, uh, participate and, uh, uh, then, then all I had to do is figure out how to uh, squeeze out the memory and disk space for this <laughs> uh, a, some, somewhat, you know, substantial, you know, room that was not part of the original plan. <laughs> <laughs> but I thought, well, I'm going to chance it. I'm going to chance it that I can figure it out. <laughs> well, so, so David, I mean, you must have interacted with most or all of those people on that list, right? You want to talk about like what was your experience of um interviewing them or um, getting in touch with them, stuff like that? Yeah, it was it was really tough because since the Apple II was prevalent so early in the context of not just personal computers, but the games industry, a lot of Apple II developers made a game or two, maybe three for the Apple II, and then left the industry to get a quote-unquote real job. And so some of them, usually what I do is I'll meet one person who introduces me to two other people who introduced me to five other people. And then the, you know, it just kind of snowballs the Rolodex scrolls from there. Um, but I had to really hit up LinkedIn and look at people who um, hadn't made games, maybe since their one hit for the Apple two and kind of study up on them to learn where they worked before or after they put out an Apple two game and, and reach out to them on that basis. And once I did get a hold of them, though, people were very forthcoming. Talking to Richard Garriott was a ton of fun. I mean, he, you know, you might have noticed those chapters were just crammed with details. <laughs> he opened up a lot about his childhood and what it was like to grow up with, you know, a dad who um, who had gone to outer space and what it was like working in their, their family, um, just being kind of a part of a community where, you know, everyone's uh, dad was affiliated with, with NASA or something similar. Um, 
I, I would say that personal, like I tried to get a hold of Steve Wozniak, but his assistant let me know that he was too busy, maybe still recovering from Dancing with the Stars or something. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I, a personal highlight for me was talking with Jordan Mechner, who was really busy on on movie stuff at the time. But Prince of Persia is one of my favorite games of all time. I had never actually played Karataka before I worked on before I started writing Breakout, um, and so getting to talk to him. I mean, we had one conversation about Karataka and then a whole other on, on Prince of Persia, and he was also very forthcoming. Um, I know he publishes journals, but I, I managed to ask him a lot of stuff that he actually didn't talk about in his journals and that jogged his memory. Um, and so that was just a real highlight for me, getting to talk to someone who had such an influence on me personally and professionally. Yeah, like Richard Gary, like I said, I've read like six books about him and there was still tons of stuff in your book that I'd never heard before. Like this whole thing about his mom selling the the moon pots. Like, yeah, it was, it was just <laughs> like just to just to explain quickly, you know, since his dad was an astronaut and his mom was an artist and she had made these, um, you know, these pots that you would fire in a kiln that were uh, shaped you know, sort of um, the surface was decorated like the moon and they became incredibly popular and the whole family was helping to make and, you know, glaze and fire them and everything. And I think they were selling them by the tens of thousands or something like they, all throughout. They were. And that was also um, kind of, as you mentioned, a, a family project where, you know, his mom put together an assembly line of kids and then, you know, uh, Richard's dad, her husband uh, helped out a little bit. And it was, you know, a lot of people, that's the sort of thing where when you write a book, especially one that is not digital, um, you know, Schiffer Publishing doesn't do digital books, so Breakout is still only available in hardcover. Um, you might think that on the Internet you have an unlimited page count, so of course that's the place to share those stories. But the problem with an unlimited page count is people have a very, very finite attention span because there's so much else out there competing for their time. So when you sit down with a book, you have kind of a different mentality of, of giving more of your focus and attention to the story you're reading. And, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I, I want readers to get to know developers as people because when you make a game for the Apple II or the Atari VCS or even the NES, these, these classic systems, the team sizes were very small, oftentimes being made by one person. And what that means is everything about that person or that small team, their personalities, the culture, the work environment tends to leave a footprint in the game. And so, if that story, I shared it because I wanted to not only show just how much of a factor Richard Garriott's family was on on his games, but also just show that, hey, this is part of the culture. And he couldn't really have made these games any other way because this is just kind of his background and what he knows and how the family all kind of comes together to help each other. Yeah. Also, you mentioned Steve Wozniak, and I just want to read this anecdote. This is someone in your book is talking about Steve Wozniak and says, Woz is a pretty interesting person. He was sort of the alpha nerd in a way. People would bet him. He would say, I can copy a floppy disk with a hot steam iron. And people would say, no way. He'd go bet. And then he would go off and try to do these things. And I just think that's such a great story. That just gives you such a vivid um, picture of him as a character. It does. And it, it, it also illustrates why I wish Wozniak got a lot more credit for Apple's early successes than he does. I mean, he, he receives a tremendous amount, but when people think of, of Apple, they still uh, think of Steve Jobs, even though he's been gone for almost 10 years, which is hard to believe. But 
really the Apple Macintosh, uh, the iMac, even the iPhone, none of that would have happened, I would argue, if not for the success of the Apple II. And what's unique about that is the Apple II was so different than the products Apple would make later and makes to this day. The Apple II, you know, I talk about in my book how Waz and Jobs uh, argued over giving users the ability to add more memory and to add cards to do other things like hook up controller, you have joysticks, printers. And Steve Jobs said, no, I don't think that's necessary. And Waz said, look, we do this or you find yourself another alpha nerd, <laughs> to paraphrase. <laughs> and, you know, the Apple II really was... I think I write about this in the epilogue. The fact that you could pop the hood, tinker with it, learn about it was such a huge influence. And then after that, I mean, the Mac, hugely influential, obviously, but it was also a black box. You know, really, I feel like the, the IBM PC compatible kind of picked up the torch that the Apple II lit and it's still carrying it today. Yeah. Well, so, so Mark, so you got Waz to uh, appear in your game, right? So how'd you pull that off? Yeah, that that was uh, that was a intricate piece of networking, and <laughs> uh, it, I have to uh, give credit to uh, to Roger Wagner for that. I'm not sure if that's a name that uh, the, that you guys are familiar with, but uh, he he wrote a column called Assembly Lines in I think it was Nibble Magazine, one one of the big magazines back in the '80s, and he was the keynote speaker at Kansas Fest a couple of years ago, and and I've been going to Kansas Fest every year. Uh, for for the last uh, five years or so, and had the opportunity to uh, to meet him there, as well as um, uh, one of my teammates, uh, Chris Torrance, uh, uh, got to know him very well, uh, and uh, actually worked with Roger to uh, to publish a book called uh, uh, Assembly Lines, which is like a recompilation of all of his uh, articles from uh, from the magazine days. And anyway, uh, the it, that led to when when the uh, this uh, reunion party room was coming together and it was uh, looking, you know, like it was this boy, this is really, really going to be something special. Uh, we thought, well, you know, we got asked was. And so the natural thing to, uh, to do was to reach out to Roger to see if he could make an introduction, get us in touch with was so that we could pitch was on being in this uh, reunion <laughs> room. And Roger was gracious enough to, uh, to do that. And Steve Wozniak, was gracious enough to uh, to take the time to uh, not only agree to do it, uh, but then uh, when uh, Knox Arcaeus launched in December, uh, he he tweeted out uh, himself that uh, uh, he's uh, an NPC and Knox Arcaeus on the computer they invented 40 years ago, et cetera, et cetera. And that absolutely just made my day, made my <laughs> my my year, my decade, whatever. You know, that's for an Apple II, lifelong Apple II plan, you know, to be for me, that's like getting a blessing from the Pope. <laughs> well, I, I watched an interview with you. I, I forget if it was maybe the Lost Sectors show. It was one of those. But you were you were saying that you um, have undergone from, from in your day job, you've undergone sort of this um, high powered corporate training for networking and things. And that one of the tricks that you have learned is that when you're approaching somebody, you put in the subject of the email, like referral from so-and-so yes. that you've been in touch with. And so, so so, if you're approaching Steve Wozniak, it would be like referral from, you know, Richard Garriott or whatever. And then he would be like, oh, I know Richard Garriott. Let me, I'll read this email and see what it says. That gets him to open you, the email, yes. <laughs> yeah. But the, the, the point you made that I thought was so interesting is that, you know, you can do like whole chains of these kind of like David was talking about where, you know, you might have you, you might have initially only known some very low level person and they introduced you to someone. And so like when you get to the like referral from Richard Garriott, you said the person 
doesn't know that it might be 10, you know, it might be 10 chains down to the person that you actually personally knew initially. Um, but they don't know that when they get your email. I, I thought that was a, that was a really clever bit of networking advice there. Yeah, it, absolutely. It's very effective. And uh, I, in, in putting together the Apple II reunion party, uh, I didn't have to get anywhere near 10 hops out, part, partially because several other people in the room, uh, like John Carmack and Robert Woodhead, Berger, Becky, um, you know, they, they all actually backed the Kickstarter. <laughs> so that, oh, wow. that made it easier to get in touch with them and then and then also to to get in touch with the others from from there but uh i i did in in one of one of my uh day job professional situations i, I did actually get 10 hops out you know one time <laughs> and you know which, which was the exact <laughs> example i gave in lost sector so i i did have the opportunity to confirm that there really isn't a limit to the number of hops that you go uh if if you use effective networking techniques yeah. I also thought, you know, I've interviewed Matt Barton on this um, podcast and I, I really like his Matt Chat show. And so I thought it was funny that he also appears as an NPC uh, in the game. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, that's great. It was uh, was really great to have Matt in there. And uh, uh, I, I had the opportunity to meet uh, Matt through just, uh, well, I, I, Knox Arcast uh, was, was on his show. We were on his show doing a live stream um, a couple of years ago, you know, while we were in still... Uh, development, which of course was the result of, of some networking and introduction from uh, another developer that, that had been on his show. Uh, but uh, it was in, in, in the course of that uh, that I had the opportunity to, to ask him if he'd like to be an NPC. And uh, and it worked out so great. I don't, I don't know if you've gotten to the point in, in, in the game. Yeah, but, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. You, you have not, did you say? No, I have, yeah. Oh, you have, yeah. Uh, the, uh, you know, some, some things just happen by chance. The, the quest that he gives to seek and slay the Rat King and, and you know, bring back the Rat King's head, which is just so the quest that Matt Barton would give in a game. Uh, it, it just coincidentally, it was a quest created by one of our Kickstarter backers. Some of the Kickstarter tiers, the upper tiers had uh, game design rewards where you get to design an island or uh, a room in a dungeon or something like that. And this particular, uh, a particular backer that had, uh, you know, one of those rewards, uh, decided to, uh, design an area of the game that had, uh, this mob called the Rat King. And, and this, and it was like from some, some games that, that, uh, that he had made as a kid or something. But, but when he submits that in, and at the same time, I'm knowing that uh, I hadn't created the Matt Barton NPC or even the town that he was in yet, it was like, Oh, I just see this totally fitting together. <laughs> yeah. Well, if people don't know, because because Matt Barton, he he talks about all these classic CRPGs, and the first monsters you always fight is you always go down in the dungeon and fight rats, and he's always like, "Why rats?" <laughs> you know. <laughs> but he's so it's kind of like a a running joke he has. Um, I guess uh, actually, uh, Mark, are there any other um, sort of cameos in the game that I haven't mentioned there? Oh, let's see. I think. Uh... I think we've mentioned most of them. John, John Romero uh, is is in there. I mean, we may not have uh, uh, talked about him yet. He, he was uh, was really fun talking to uh, uh, to him, uh, and uh, of course, him graciously agreeing to to be in the game. And uh, but I think we've touched on everybody else. Okay, cool. I mean, David, were there any other um, any other stories you ha- you wanted to tell about interacting with these Apple II designers or interacting with Apple II? Community? Have you ever been to Kansas Fest? Any of that kind of stuff? Um, I was actually going to to go and give uh, 
I think I might have been up for a keynote um, to open it one year. Must have been 2018, but I had a scheduling conflict. But I would still like to go and actually not talk because that's the part of of writing and promoting that I don't I like the least. I'm a um, a bit shy. It would really be cool to just go and hobnob and you know just talk to all these people, meet them face to face. John Romero used to throw these Apple II parties, and he talked about wanting to to fly me out for the next one he does, so I can meet a lot of these folks. Um, particularly because, on a more sobering note, you know, a lot of these developers are, are passing away um, since all this happened so long ago, and that's actually why I was glad to get to to talk to people like uh, Doug and Gary Carlson, the co-founders of Broader Bund, when I could, because um, they all have such fascinating, fun, and, and educational stories to tell, and um, it's pretty imperative to get them down on paper while you still can. Are you planning to do, have you sort of said everything you have to say about Apple II in this book, or do you think you might write any more about might, the Apple II? I might write a sequel, although I, um, I've i been a full-time writer for almost 20 years, and one way I keep myself motivated is, is through wanderlust. I often don't tackle the same subject twice series kind of kill me like people are like when stay well and listen coming three you know stay well and listen three coming out and i'm like oh i don't <laughs> i have no idea but um i like to just write about a lot of different stuff and so i got a lot of questions uh, similar questions about dungeon hacks and roguelikes and the answer is maybe but right now i'm definitely um on other tracks yeah. Well, so um, one thing I thought was interesting in your book was um, you said that you can you can actually play all these Apple II games pretty easily, um, mm-hmm. that there's these websites that um, archive them and there's all these emulators and stuff. Can you tell, like if someone's like, oh, I used to play Karatika, it would be nice to take that out for a spin again. Like what's the easiest way to, to get one of these games going these days? Sure. Um, there are a lot of virtual arcades that you can play just through web browsers. And I can't um, think of the names of any right now, and I don't want to type because that would, you know, you don't want to hear my mechanical keyboard <laughs> on the podcast. But if you really just type, you know, play Apple II games online, I mean, within the first handful of results, you'll find all sorts of web emulators that will load the discs for you. They tell you the controls. I think some even have a save state option, so you don't have to deal with a lot of the very cumbersome save mechanics that games had back then. And you can just get up to speed and go. You can even, a lot of them let you choose the um, incarnation of the Apple II you want. You can play with the, you know, black and green monochrome monitors or, you know, upgrade, so to speak, to a, to an Apple TGS and play in, in bright, vivid color. Um, so, yeah, there's, there's a ton of ways to play this game. And, you know, just kind of piggybacking on uh, Mark's stories, the cool thing about talking with folks like, like John Romero, John Carmack, um, Richard Garriott is, and Ed Berger, Becky, she's, these people just love that they were involved in this scene and are still active in it and will talk to you, will walk you through anything you want to hear about. So, you know, if anyone would ever have a question, you know, play an Apple II game and then have a question for, for any of them, you can tweet at them and nine times out of 10, they'll get back to you within 12 hours or so and just talk your ear off about these days. It's pretty hmm. cool. And, um, yeah, and so everyone, you know, definitely like check out some of these old Apple II games because they're pretty cool still. Like Load Runner, I think, is just an amazingly fun game. Yes. I mean, it's like, you know, on this, it's like such a, so many, um, you know, uh, 
intelligent decisions you have to make and strategies you have to employ in this, you know, using this very simple technology. Um, but and I don't know if we've, and, and so, and obviously definitely check out Nox Archaist. I mean, it's like so much fun. It really takes me back, like I said, to playing Rings of Zilfin and Fantasy and Ultima 4 and all these games. And I don't know if we've made this clear, but you don't have to have an Apple II to play it. Um, so, uh, so Mark, do you want to talk, like, say you don't have an Apple II, uh, how do you play Nox Archaist? Sure. Yeah. You, you can play it on a modern Windows, uh, modern Mac computer and, uh, just go to our website, noxarchaist.com and you can get the game there or, uh, even on Steam as of, uh, January 28th. Uh, if you're on Steam, just, uh, do a search for Nox Archaist. You'll be able to grab it there on whatever, uh, whatever platform you're using Steam on. Yeah. And I just want to like, for people like me who didn't read the manual and everything and just jump into it, I just want to explain that, you know, the game only has two save slots. And so you should definitely, you know, in general, just use slot one if you're in town and slot two if you're out in the wilderness so that you don't get yourself stuck. But then also you can just like make multiple folders and just copy all the game files into multiple folders. And then you'll have, you know, as many save slots as you want. Um, and so that's, I think, pretty important because there's a lot of ways you you can get stuck definitely in the game. Uh, so it's good to have, uh, you know, a bunch of different saved games going. Yeah, that's, uh, exactly the, the technique I recommend. Yeah. Um, and I also, I just want to mention one of the features of the game is quick combat, which I think is a, uh, underutilized option in role-playing games. Um, I don't know if you ever played Wizard's Crown. That was the first. I did. I think that, was, that, that was the first role-playing game I, I ever played on a computer, and that has quick combat. And it's always it's always stuck in my mind because it says in the manual something like, um, you know, you might want to use quick combat for some of the later fights in the game, which can take upwards of six hours. <laughs> it's, it's, it's something like wow. that. <laughs> the game was insane. But, um, yeah, just, uh, just do you want to talk just quickly about the quick combat? Absolutely. One of the most frequent things that I heard from people interested in Nox or Chaos was that while they liked the 8-bit role-playing games like Ultima, uh, they, they did find uh, the combat to get a bit grindy at, at a certain point. And uh, I, I remember that myself. You know, was was having enough fun overall. It didn't matter. But uh, I, I, can, I can remember, you know, being uh, like uh, a top-level uh, party of characters and I'm coming out of a dungeon just having... Um, you know, grabbed a bunch of uh, loot and experience, and I'm heading to town uh, to sell the loot, and I and I get attacked by some you know low level mob like orcs or something, and uh, that I'm just going to absolutely obliterate. But the game would make me go through a full blown tactical combat and spend a couple minutes to you know dispatch them, and and it was always it was a you know an annoyance, and and uh, when I heard other people saying that. They felt that way too, and probably even more, much more strongly than I did. Uh, that that's when I, I thought that uh, a great way of pushing the boundaries on the tile RPG would be to have uh, the tactical combat system that everybody expects, full screen tactical combat, but also in addition have a quick combat option uh, that uh, you know wouldn't be a substitute for tactical combat. You're not as likely to win battles in quick combat as you are in tactical. But if you're in a situation where, you know, you know you're way more powerful than the monster that, that, that just attacked you, quick combat, you can be done with that battle in seconds and moving on to the next thing. And uh, it's it's really been something that uh, 
you know, even even hardcore RPG players have, have said that it, it, w- it was a really wonderful quality of life enhancement. Yeah, yeah, so definitely check out this game again. It's called Nox Arcast, and it's, you know, perfect if you remember these these games, like, uh, you know, from the 80s. But also if you, you know, if you're a fan of modern RPGs and you've never played games going back to the 80s, it's a really good way, I think, to just sort of learn a bit of the history and see what the games used to be like and how they've developed without a lot of the frustrations that, you know, that we dealt with back in the 80s, which, there and there were a lot of frustrations, and you can kind of get the good without the bad. So, um, you know, yeah, like definitely check out the game because uh, I've I've been having a, an absolute blast with it the last couple of weeks. Um, we're pretty much out of time, so I guess just uh, Mark, do you have any final thoughts on just this this whole uh, phenomenon of Apple II games? It's growing. Uh, the uh, the retro scene, uh, retro gaming scene uh, in general, uh, inclusive of Apple II, uh, is really on the rise. And, uh, you know, now is a great time uh, to, to kind of get in on this renaissance that's happening when uh, not only can you enjoy playing the game, uh, but you can uh, interact with others that are playing uh, these games at the same time. Noxercast has a Discord server uh, and, and there's other retro gaming Discord servers as well. And it's just a really great time to, uh, to kind of get in on the nostalgic fun. Absolutely. And so, David, final thoughts on Apple II games. Yeah, you know, they're, they still mean a lot to me. These stories mean a lot to me. Um, I mean, if you're, if you're interested in learning more, definitely check out Breakout. But if you really want to get, uh, up to your elbows in these games, I would, I would recommend checking out Nox Archaeist. It's, it's a great love letter, I would say, to this era of gaming and the, the formative RPGs that, uh, all three of us spend a lot of time playing. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, all right. So let's wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with David L. Craddock, author of Breakout, and Mark Lemmert, project leader on Nox Archaist. So thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks uh, for having me as well. It was a great time. And that was our panel. So big thanks again to David L. Craddock and to Mark Lemmert for joining us on the show. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.